That is the sound of me going for a run. It's something I do multiple times a week, dozens of times a month, and ultimately hundreds of times a year. I've run 5Ks, 10Ks, half marathons, full marathons, and even a couple of ultras. I love running. I spend a lot of my free time reading books on running adventures or watching videos from pro runners. I'm not very good at running, but I really enjoy it. And yet, when I share this with others, I don't call myself a runner. Instead, I say I like to run. For a long time, this was something I wasn't really aware of at all. But for whatever reason, calling myself a runner just didn't seem right. A runner, in my mind, was someone who was faster, someone who was more committed, someone who was more disciplined than me. I'm not a runner. I just like to run. There is a difference between liking to run and being a runner, at least in my mind. And this difference is important, not only to runners, but, according to some of the studies we'll share today, to children, to politicians, to climate activists, and to businesses. Because the way we are described changes how we're perceived and how we act. Today, I'm talking to a researcher who has spent his career researching this phenomenon. He set up studies to analyse the difference between calling someone a voter or asking them to vote. He's uncovered findings that changed Obama's election campaigns and how parents ask their kids for help. And he helped me figure out why I don't call myself a runner. All that coming up after this quick break. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct-to-consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing, and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm talking with Christopher Bryan, a researcher who has spent decades researching how words influence persuasion. My name is Christopher Bryan. I'm an associate professor of business, government and society at the Macomb School of Business at the University of Texas at Austin. I'm, I'm a social psychologist by training and by practice, and my primary expertise and area of specialization is identifying ways to help people find the motivation to prioritize the things they should be doing, the things that are good for them or good for others, good for society, but that many people struggle to muster the motivation for. Chris is fascinated by the nouns people use to describe themselves. Back in the early 2000s, Chris heard a talk by a researcher, Susan Gelman, and this talk changed the trajectory of his career. I remember being struck during her talk by a description of uh, a study in which she and her, her collaborator, Gail Heyman, who was actually later my colleague at the University of California, San Diego, they had this this sort of intuition that when you use a noun to describe a person's behavior, right? So if I run regularly, I could tell you that I run regularly, or I could tell you that I'm a runner. It's that I'm a runner, that predicate noun that we're talking about here. And their intuition was that there is a subtle meaning conveyed by that choice. And the subtle meaning is I'm telling you something really fundamental, really essential about who I am. 
I, I've been training in kickboxing now for a couple of years, and I wouldn't feel comfortable referring to myself as a kickboxer. It feels like overclaiming. And so their study was was something was really simple, and it wasn't even about self perception. It was about perceptions of others. So they they told young children, "Hey, this is Rose. Rose is a carrot eater." Or Rose eats carrots whenever she can. And then they asked the kids, once they had heard this description, either Rose is a carrot eater or Rose eats carrots whenever she can. Suppose no one in Rose's family liked carrots um, or wanted to eat them. Do you think she would still find a way to eat carrots? And if she had been described as a carrot eater, even very young children thought, yeah, she'd find a way to do it. More than if she had been described as someone who eats carrots whenever she can. Even though that latter phrasing is pretty strong pretty strong wording, right? It's whenever she can is is strong. This 1999 study by Susan Gelman is eye-opening. For the experiment, they gathered 115 children aged between five and seven and told them about this hypothetical person, Rose. Half the children were told a noun label for the character, saying Rose is a carrot eater, whereas the other half heard a verb, saying Rose eats carrots whenever she can. Later, the children were asked, If Rose's family didn't like carrots, would Rose still eat them? The children were 13% more likely to say yes if they heard the noun label. When five-year-olds were asked, will Rose continue to eat carrots in the future? Those who heard the noun label were 23% more likely to say yes, she would than those who heard the verb label. This subtle change had a big impact on perception. And Chris couldn't stop thinking about it. And I was thinking about this idea and i thought like how could you use that to change people's own perceptions like what if i got you to describe yourself as a voter for example because because voting was really a big focus political engagement was a big big focus of mine at the time might that shift how you saw yourself and actually greg walton who later ended up being my postdoc advisor uh along with mazarin banaji had done a study extending the gelman and Heyman finding to self-perception. And the way they did it was under the guise of a handwriting exercise. So for example, they would have people, they would say, hey, we're really interested in something about the way you cho- you actually write things. So we're going to ask you to write out this sentence five times. And it was either a noun formulation of a, a self-description or a verb-based formulation. So like, I read Shakespeare a lot, or I'm a Shakespeare reader. I drink Coke, or I'm a Coke drinker. And then they just ask them afterwards, oh, by the way, how how much does this actually characterize you? Like, how much do you actually read Shakespeare or like Shakespeare? How much do you actually like Coke? And they found something that was consistent with the ideas in the Gelman and Heyman paper, which was if people had just described themselves as a Coke drinker five times, then they reported liking Coke a little bit more than if they had described themselves as, as liking Coke. This study, titled Being What You Say, Ask participants to write down preferences for all sorts of things, like I'm a PC person or I'm a Mac person. I sleep a lot versus I like staying up late. But like the previous studies, participants were split into two groups. Half were told to write in a noun form, so I'm a Papa John's pizza eater, and half were told to write in a verb form, so I eat Papa John's a lot. When asked if they were keen to continue eating Papa John's or buying Apple Macs or sleeping a lot, those who wrote in noun descriptions were 6% more likely to say yes. What's more, they rated this personality trait as stronger, as more stable and as more resilient. 
which is incredible. Just tweaking how you or I write about our preferences dictates how strongly we think those preferences are. If I'd started today's episode saying I am a runner, I'd probably be more likely to go on a run later. After reading this study, Chris had a bit of a breakthrough. It occurred to me that if you just embedded this wording in a, in survey questions, that that might be a way to get that that idea across to people. And the idea is when you pose a question, you actually have quite a lot of latitude to set the premise. Social norms don't really include an opportunity to challenge that premise. And so if I ask you, how important is it to you to be a voter in tomorrow's election? The fact that I've chosen to phrase it as be a voter is not particularly salient. It's just that's the question on the table. You consider it. This was the summer of 2004. So the 2004 presidential election was coming up when I had this these thoughts. The idea was I knew you could look up whether a person was registered to vote. I didn't know at the time you could also look up whether they actually voted. And so my initial idea was just get people to register to vote. And so I brought people in who were eligible but not registered to vote in the 2004 presidential election, whom I just was able to find on Stanford campus. And so I brought people in. I had them fill out a very long survey, like many, many pages of different kinds of questions, either about their attitudes about being a voter in the upcoming election or about voting in the upcoming election. The reason I had so many is that I thought, like, this is a very subtle difference. I better hammer it home. And so I did that. And then I gave people a, a, an address stamped envelope with the voter registration form. And I said, if you'd like to register, all you have to do is fill out this form, put it in this envelope, drop it in the mail. And if you do it by this date, you'll be registered and you can vote in the election. I couldn't get very many people. I think I mentioned this. Very few people were eligible but not registered by the time I ran this study. So I only had about 35 people in this study, despite my best efforts over weeks. The, the results were striking, but not statistically significant. So striking in the sense that it was like a 60-40 difference. So it was like 60% had, re had registered, roughly, I think it was about 60% had registered if they'd gotten the Be a Voter version, and only about 40% had registered if they'd gotten the vote version. Now, that's a gigantic effect. It's such a small number. You can't take that effect estimate seriously, but it felt like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm really on the cusp of something pretty neat here. Chris is right. This is neat. For, I think, the first time, Chris has evidence that using a noun label didn't just change someone's perception of others or their perception of themselves, it actually changed their behaviour. People were more likely to register to vote when they were asked to be a voter than when they were asked to vote. One letter appeared to shift behaviour. Vote to voter. This could have huge implications for all types of messages, but first, Chris needed to prove this on a much bigger scale, which he did a few years later at Stanford. And so I spoke to a professor in the communication department at Stanford whom I had established a, a, a relationship with. His name is John Krosnick, and he's done a lot of voter turnout research. And I said, and I asked him, I said, John, if I want to look up whether people actually voted in the election, what information do I need to get? And he said, well, you're going to need first name, last name, date of birth, and county. If you get those, those pieces of information, you're in decent shape to look people up. So I thought, okay, well, day before the election, let me just try this. It's going to cost me almost nothing. I've already programmed the online survey. Might as well try it. 
And so I did, um, and I just used the Stanford online paid pool, which was a mix of students and community members whom they had managed to get to sign up. I discovered, oh my gosh, there appears to be a pretty substantial effect here on whether people actually showed up at the polls the next day, based on whether you referred to this as being a voter versus voting. I believe that that one was a 14 percentage point effect, which is not quite as large as a 20 percentage point effect. But it was with a larger sample. So it was around 80 people. So that's still that, that that's around like 40 some odd per per group, because there are two groups. By the standards of social psychology experiments at the time I ran that, quite a healthy sample. By the standards of behavioral science experiments today, not enough to be taken seriously on its own. Previously, Chris had seen that people were 20 percentage points more likely to register to be a voter when they were asked to be a voter. Now he found that people were 14 percentage points more likely to vote when asked to be a voter. So still very, very solid results, still sharing the same finding. But he wanted to research this on a much larger scale. So he collaborated with a fellow researcher, Todd Rogers, and planned a new study on an upcoming election in New Jersey. But New Jersey did. And so he said, you know, you could replicate it, you could try to get a bigger sample, and you could have a lot of confidence, or a lot more confidence if you did, if you did that. So I did, I looked into it, I I, I applied for some funding, Um, I was actually able to get a probability sample, I used uh, TESS, which is um, time sharing experiments in the social sciences, which is a a collaborative effort by a bunch of behavioral researchers who recognize that studying our ideas in probability samples is a pretty important thing. Um, that, that doesn't happen largely because it's prohibitively expensive. So if we could make it feasible, we'd improve the quality of science. So I applied, uh, they, they actually sort of went out of their way to streamline the review process because the election was coming up by the time I figured this out. We ran the study, we got the participants matched to voter records eventually, and we again found a substantial effect. This time it was on the order of 10.9, maybe it was. It was it was around 10 percentage points. So still gigantic. Like just for context, most research on it's referred to as GOTV research, get out the vote research. And it's it's interventions like the one I just described, either by mail or by phone or door to door aiming to get people to show up. And the typical effect of like, like, for example, at the minimum, a piece of get out the vote mail, you know, like a little flyer you receive in your mailbox, that has, I think, an average effect on the order of two percentage points. Chris is right. A 10.9% swing in actual voting behaviour is huge. For context, Todd Rogers' other famous voting intention study, one I'd shared before on Nudge, asked people to come up with a voting plan. So for example, rather than call people and ask, will you vote? He'd call and ask, how will you vote? This is called a commitment device. And it worked. It made people 4.1% more likely to vote. That's a big increase, but it's nowhere near the 10.9% that Chris had seen. Or take another experimental study. In 2006, in Michigan, people were warned that whether they voted or not would be shared on a public forum, and that increased voting intention by 4.9%. Again, that's impressive, but it's a costly thing. It involves sharing swaths of data publicly. Chris got double the impact from changing just one letter, changing vote to voter. 
And after this quick break, Chris will share how this finding had a major impact on campaigns around the world. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. Okay, welcome back to Nudge with me, Phil Agnew. Now, as you'd expect, this finding was newsworthy and many campaigns looked to adopt it. When the paper came out, there was some media coverage of it and some of that coverage made it around to people working in the political space. And one group it made around made it to were the registrars of voters for all the California counties. And so I started seeing people would send me pictures of ads that people like, for example, in San Francisco in a subsequent election where the ad, the ad just said, be a voter. It was also, it made it into a set of recommendations by a bunch of behavioral science scientists who ended up advising the Barack Obama presidential campaign the next year in 2012. And they used it. So, so it was a part of their their campaign was was to work in this be a voter language into their their materials. This finding is still used today. I googled be a voter and quickly found this video with 16,000 views from last year's primary elections. The Iowa Secretary of State wants you to be a voter in the June 7th primary election. But here's the thing. Chris was certain these noun labels wouldn't just encourage people to vote. No, he thought it could encourage all sorts of behaviour. For example, he thought it could encourage people to cheat less. So with two colleagues, he set up a study in 2013 to test just that. We ran a series of studies where people were essentially invited to play games for money, where they could cheat and claim the money, and there's no way we would ever know that they had cheated. The beauty of of each of these games was, although we couldn't know whether any individual had cheated, we would have a pretty clear sense of whether there was cheating going on in the group, where we could have people flip a coin. And we said, we're interested in whether uh, psychokinesis is real, basically telekinesis, right? The uh, ability of a person to influence the movement, the physical movement of an object with his or her mind. And this was online. Now, just to clarify, they are obviously not testing for telekinetics here. That's the lie they told participants to disguise the main point of the study. The main point was to see if telling people to not be a cheater was more effective at reducing cheating than saying, don't cheat. We said flip a coin 10 times and try as hard as you can, really concentrate and try to influence the movement of the coin such that it comes up heads as often as possible. And in order to motivate you to really concentrate on influencing the outcome of the coin toss, we're going to give you a dollar for every time your coin comes up heads. 
And then we say, okay, next page, start flipping the coin. And then that same warning, please don't cheat and claim that one or more of your coin flips was heads when it was really tails, or please don't be a cheater and do this. So now the, the nice thing about the coin flipping experiment is we know the probability of, of heads, right? So we still can't tell if any one person is cheating, but we can tell how much cheating is going on in the group relative to perfect honesty. And what and, and what we find is that when you say, please don't be a cheater, we find actually no evidence of cheating at all. What we find is that the average number of heads reported is roughly five out of 10. Um, and it's not statistically different from five out of 10. Uh, when we say, please don't cheat, there's a small but significant amount of cheating going on. And then in, in the third of the three experiments, we were interested in whether please don't cheat is any different from saying nothing. And what we find in that experiment is that the rate of heads that people claim is both significantly greater than five. So some evidence of cheating at the group level. And there's no difference between the group that was told nothing and the group that was told, please don't cheat. But the group that was told, please don't be a cheater, still is showing no evidence of cheating whatsoever. Telling people don't be a cheater stopped all forms of cheating. Saying please don't cheat didn't. Using these nouns as persuasive messages seemed to be very effective. And Chris was keen for more examples of this. So he set up another study, one I think that every parent needs to hear. A study that researched if using a noun label could get kids to clean up after themselves. So we orchestrated this set of opportunities for kids to help an adult with, with um, boring chores while they were playing with fun toys. And so the first step was find some fun toys they don't have ready access to at the nursery school. So we found some big magnetic marbles and some other cool things that they, they weren't used to. So they really got into it. And then the experimenter would get them playing and then would pretend to just notice that there was a big pile of blocks over in the corner of the room and, and would say, oh, no, I forgot to put those blocks away. Better do that now. And the experimenter had a series of prompts that were not at all directive, but that were kind of hinted at, you know, your help would be welcome. And, and we were interested in how long it would take the kids to help and how likely they were to help, how many prompts they had to hear before they helped, that sort of thing. But, but before any of this happened, we had had this brief introductory conversation. And the introductory conversation was this noun versus verb experimental manipulation. And the experimenter either said, we're interested in helpers. You know, helpers are people who do this and do that. And, you know, when they see that there, there's a need or we're interested in helping, helping is doing this and doing that. And, you know, when, when, when there's a need, then you, you, you pitch in. And so, and then we ask them, you know, how do you feel about being a helper or how do you feel about helping? Right. And then, and then it was, they, they're playing with fun toys. And then once they're engaged in the fun toys, these uh, sort of structured scripted or opportunities to help. And we video recorded everything. We got independent coders to code whether they had helped and how long and all of that. And the bottom line is if they had just had a conversation about being a helper, then they helped more than if they had just had a conversation about helping. When kids were asked if they'd be a helper, they were 75% more likely to help the teacher put away the bins in the classroom than when they were simply asked to help. That's another incredible result. So far, Chris has found that using a noun label rather than a verb makes people 10.9% more likely to vote, makes people completely stop cheating, and now makes children 75% more likely to clean up. 
I think businesses should be able to use these findings. And I think marketing teams can use them too. But before I start sharing examples of how they could be used, Chris was keen to tell me that this effect doesn't always work. Here he is sharing an example of when it might not work. It could have the opposite of the intended effect to the extent that people hear the noun wording as describing an identity that they aren't interested in, that we might think of as a good identity, but they don't. Where that became clear to me was when I tried to run a study with Stanford undergraduates where I gave them a survey about their thoughts and and attitudes about being an energy saver. And then a few weeks later, I found a, a, a pretext to survey those same people about how much they had done a number of things I had suggested in that previous survey as ways to save energy, turning off lights when you're not using them, stuff like that. I found evidence that the energy saver phrasing had actually somewhat suppressed the likelihood that students would try to save energy. And after thinking about it, I think the reason for that is that energy saver sounds childish, right? It's, and these are, these are college students. These are, these are university students. And so they didn't want to be patronized that way. That was a case of an identity I had been thinking of as a as a positive one, maybe not sounding so appealing to, to the population in question. I've since done subsequent studies with similar outcomes. For example, we we did a study with people on the mailing list for the San Francisco Playhouse, where we invited them to be a supporter of the arts or to support the arts. And supporter of the arts resulted in fewer donations. And I was chatting with my former colleague, uh, uh, Ayelet Genizi at the University of California, San Diego. And she said, that makes sense to me because supporter of the arts sounds really burdensome. It sounds like you have to show up to meetings and, you know, be on committees and stuff. Support the arts sounds like write a check and you're done with it. So these are examples of why it's a little bit of a risky tool to use is that you have to have a very clear sense of how it's going to be understood. So this won't work if the noun you're using sounds patronizing. Graduate students might not want to identify as an energy saver. It probably also won't work when the noun you're using is polarizing. Don't, for example, refer to Prius drivers as environment lovers. Sure, some might like it, but it's not a label that everyone will agree with. And if you're trying to encourage action, don't use a noun that seems time-consuming and costly. Being asked to be a supporter of the arts feels like a big ongoing investment rather than just saying support the arts. The same would be true if a running club asked me to join and become a runner. That'll feel more taxing than simply asking me to join for a run. So, Where can marketers and business use this nudge? Well, I think it's best for encouraging customers to cement their existing behaviour. I think these noun labels will be very effective at keeping loyal customers loyal. Starbucks should refer to their loyalty scheme customers as Starbucks fans, rather than fans of Starbucks. The Labour Party in the UK should thank their members for being Labour voters, rather than saying thanks for voting for Labour. And sports teams could boost ticket sales by asking supporters to grab the last tickets rather than asking them to support their team. And even look at SaaS products like Netflix and Spotify. They should praise their members after they renew by referring to them as lovers of great music or fanatics of the best TV. Every business needs to keep customers and using noun labels when talking to these customers should work. But you should also try to use this principle in other ways too. Perhaps an ad for this podcast would perform better if I invited people to become listeners rather than asking them to listen. 
Or maybe my newsletter would perform better if I told people to join as a subscriber rather than asking them to subscribe. But if you do try one of these approaches, make sure to test it first. As Chris says, using a noun label is not guaranteed to work. Instead, you should test it before implementing it. I started this episode wondering why I didn't refer to myself as a runner, and I think I've got a very good reason. It might only be a couple of extra letters, but the nouns we use to describe ourselves and the nouns others use to describe us dramatically influences our behaviour and perception. A noun label made people vote more, it made more children clean up, and it kept people more honest. So with that in mind, it's probably time I thanked you for being a listener. Listeners like you make this show what it is, so thank you for being such a great listener. I appreciate it. That's all from me, folks. Massive thank you to Chris for coming on the show. I've left a link to his website if you want to read more of Chris's fantastic research, and I recommend you do. So go and check that out in the show notes. And if you've enjoyed the insights in today's episode, then do consider becoming a subscriber of the Nudge newsletter. Subscribers get access to a behavioral science tip every Friday. So to sign up, head to nudgepodcast.com and click newsletter in the menu. Thanks again, folks. I'm your host, Phil Agnew, and I will be back next week for another episode of Nudge. Cheers.